All right, so Acts 26 today, just a little recap from last week. We've been journeying through the book of Acts, and this is the second to last week we'll be in it, so we'll finish up the book next week. And if you were with us last time, we, we took a pretty big chunk of the story. It was actually Acts chapter 21 through 25, okay? And we didn't dive down into every detail, but we looked at this overall story of the life of Paul as he was now being arrested and tried for his message of the gospel. The Jews, they wanted to kill him because of the message that he was preaching. It went against so much of what they thought they believed about God. And so last week was really the story of Paul and the gospel itself being on trial because of the Jews, but before the occupying Roman forces that were surrounding them. And the big takeaway for me was this. Paul's life looked so much like Jesus's life. Okay, we talked about last week that it was, it was cross-shaped. Back in chapter 21, verse 13, Paul, he said this, for I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And it's this readiness, this, this mindset. We don't all have the same exact specific calling of the Apostle Paul, but generally speaking, this is to be the mindset of all Christians. For I'm ready to fill in the blank, do whatever it is for the name of the Lord Jesus, even if it means suffering. And we clarify that this doesn't mean we like pick up our cross because we have to suffer again for our sins, but actually we pick up our cross because we've been united with the one who already did that for us. So not only does the message of Jesus give us salvation, but the pattern of his life becomes our life. This death bringing about life pattern becomes ours as well. Paul, he explains this dynamic in 2 Corinthians chapter four. He says this, we are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And then he clarifies, he says, so death is at work in us, so that life would be at work in you. The pattern of Jesus' life, this cross-shaped life, becomes the pattern of our life. So it was a big challenge for us last week to pick up up our cross and follow Jesus, to pick up our cross and love unconditionally, to pick up our cross and give sacrificially, to pick up our cross every day and actually climb down the ladder of humility instead of up the ladder of pride, to pick up our cross and forgive not only our friends and our family, but Jesus says our enemies, to pick up our cross and aspire to be a servant rather than a celebrity to pick up our cross and deny our selfish and sinful desires, to pick up our cross and bear one another's burdens, help each other carry each other's crosses, to pick up our cross and let go of earthly treasures or even just hold them with open hands before our king. And if persecution comes, we pick up our cross and we suffer for his name. This was the challenge of last week, the cross-shaped life, but inside of that challenge, guys, there is a massive invitation. And in our text today, at the end of Acts 26, Paul's going to give his defense and he's going to be wearing these prison chains. But at the very end, he's going to say, I pray to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. And so he's saying, I'm not suffering for suffering's sake. Like I'm not wearing these prison chains because I like them. I'm suffering for the sake of Christ. I'm bearing the cross because this was the path that Jesus led me on. And I don't wish you had these chains, but I wish you were on the same path that I am on. I wish you had Jesus like I do. And if you read Paul's writings, he was a man 
of profound suffering, but consistent, incredible joy. He wasn't all doom and gloom because he knew that true joy was found on the path of following Jesus while carrying his cross. I read a great book about this over Christmas break. It was called The Cross Before Me by Rankin Wilborn and, and Brian Greger. And in the very beginning of the book, they basically lay out the thesis that it, and it explains this, this same dynamic that we're talking about. It says the thesis of this book is that God's way to human flourishing is the cruciform way, the way of the cross. The good and beautiful life is the cruciform life, a life not only saved by, but also shaped by the cross. This is the unique and unheralded path to the life we have always wanted. It's the way to what Jesus calls the blessed life in Matthew 5 and what the Apostle Paul calls the life that is truly life in 1 Timothy 6. And I was reading that over Christmas break and I, just, I had turned 29 just a couple days before that, kind of looking ahead to this next year of my life where I'm gonna be turning 30 years old and, and asking the question like, what is this next decade of my life going to be marked by? I was looking at my journal the other day and on my Christmas day journaling, I was writing questions about this question. Like, will my life be shaped by the cross? I wrote, will I learn and experience this this year? And as I asked that question, another question loomed over my head and it was this, how am I gonna do this? How am I gonna live this type of life? What type of energy or power or motivation can move me to pattern my life after the cross? Like it's one thing to show up on a Sunday and sing the cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. It's another thing to wake up every day and actually put one foot in front of the other and carry the specific cross that I have to endure. And I was reminded of that question again last week as we looked at Acts 21 through 25. And the question for me was how do we endure this cross-shaped life? Where do we get the strength, the motivation to live this? When we're tempted to put it down, how do we draw the power to pick it up? And today in Acts 26, we're actually gonna see Paul on trial giving this, this speech. And the whole thing that's been happening with him is everybody has been asking Paul this question. Why are you doing this? Where are you getting the strength to do this? Paul, why are you putting yourself through this? The Christians were asking him that question and now the Romans are asking that question. Look at the lead up at the end of 25 that leads into to chapter 26. So starting in 23, okay? Chapter 25, verse 23, it says, so on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. These are Roman royalty, Roman authorities. They come with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. And then at the command of Festus, this is another Roman leader, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go and send him. Now listen, but I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. And so Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. So pausing there for just a second. This is the trial 
of the Apostle Paul and they are examining him. The Romans are examining him saying, Paul, why are you putting yourself through this? What is driving you? What charge is being made against you? And as Paul, he, he stretches out his hands and he makes his defense. He speaks for himself. He's gonna tell us all at its deepest level what is driving him. At its deepest level. We're gonna see that even as Paul had his sight set on the cross of suffering in Jerusalem and then Rome, he was actually captivated by something else. Okay, so let's read his speech. It's all of chapter 26. And as I'm reading it, I just want you to pay attention and try to see what is it that Paul saw that kept him going. Acts chapter 26, verse two. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm gonna make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies to the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our own religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And I now stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So pausing just briefly, Paul is on trial because of his hope in the gospel that went against the common understanding of God, of the Jews. And so they were persecuting him in raging fury. So the reason that he's on trial is because of this hope But why? What gives him the inner motivation and drive to endure such suffering? Well, continuing on in verse 9, he tells a story. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and I tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. And so Paul, he, is, he was once like the men that persecuted him, but then while he was on one of his journeys to go do that very thing, look what happens in verse 13. He says, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun, and it shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to these things in which you have seen in me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, so now Paul, he has told his story and he looks King Agrippa in the eyes and listen to what he says. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision but I declared first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds and keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. And to this day, 
I've had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and to great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, are you out of your mind? Your great learning is driving you mad. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. He looks King Agrippa in the eyes and he says this, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know, I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to become a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king arose and the governor and Bernice and all those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Paul had the choice of freedom right in front of him, but he was captivated by something that kept him going. He calls it the heavenly vision. The turning point in Paul's life is when he saw something that transformed him in a moment and then helped him endure for a lifetime. The heavenly vision. He says, everything that I'm doing, everything that I'm enduring, King Agrippa, is because I'm being obedient to this heavenly vision. Trial after trial that goes on for years, Paul's life hangs in the balance of this Roman verdict, but he looks to the heavenly vision and knows that he's really in God's hands. Hebrews chapter 12 says a very similar thing about Jesus. It says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus too, he saw the crown on the other side of the cross. The crown that would only come through the cross. And it wasn't just a crown for him because he had that already in heaven. It was a crown that he would one day share with us, his people. And he sums it up as, as this word joy. The joy of the king dying for the sins of his people and being reunited with them. That was what was out in front of Jesus. And so for us, as we have to try to follow in his footsteps and pick up our own cross, here's the big idea. We can endure our cross only by looking to the heavenly vision. As we talked about last week, the vision of the American dream is not gonna help you pick up your cross every day. It won't help you carry your cross. We need a heavenly vision. And I know that this sounds like crazy and bizarre and kind of unattainable and high and lofty. And for some of you that have been like stay at home order in your houses, you're, you're like, hey, that's cool for Paul, but the only heavenly vision that I see every day is the moment when my kids go to bed at night and I finally have some, some silence and some solitude and then I can just like go to sleep. And like that's, that's, my, that's as far out as I can think right now. That's my heavenly vision. And Festus, one of these Romans, he actually responds the same way. He says, Paul, are you out of your mind? Your great learning is driving you mad. But how does Paul respond? He says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I'm speaking true and rational words. He's saying this is true. Like this, this was really my experience. God really broke into my life and gave me this heavenly vision. And this is rational. Listen to me speaking here. I'm not crazy. And this is for you. This is for everyone. I wish that all of you were like me. 
And so what Paul is doing is he's inviting us to take up our cross and then trade our earthly visions for a heavenly one. And in the rest of our time, I just want to demystify this a little bit for us, okay? So I just want to ask the two questions. One, what is the heavenly vision? We know that we need it to endure the cross, but what actually is it? And then number two, how do we see it? What is the vision and how do we see it? Number one, what is this heavenly vision? Okay, it's a lot of things, but in this passage, I just want to point us to a few. The first thing that it is, is it's a vision of a greater story. Okay, a vision of a greater story for your life. Paul, he had spent his whole life on earth pursuing an education and a career. This is what he talked about at the beginning of his speech. He says, I was a Jew, I was a Pharisee, I had this education and this career, and then in a moment, God broke in and turned his whole life upside down. And if you're a Christian listening to this, you probably weren't riding on a literal horse when this happened to you, but isn't this all of our stories in some way or another? We didn't keep traveling down on the path that we had set out for ourselves or our culture had set out for us and then reach enlightenment and find God. But no, actually, God came down to us and enlightened us. He opened our eyes. The heavenly vision is that moment or season in your life, that time period when God showed himself to you and he showed you what life is really about. You gained a new perspective, a bigger perspective. You began to live out of a different story. This is what it means to repent. You turned away from your old life, your old story, your old conception of reality, and you turned and entered into the story that God has been writing. You lived in the new way that he has showed you. And again, I know some of our stories are more or less dramatic like Paul's, but all Christians have been given this, this new heavenly vision, this greater story that came from heaven to earth to us. The next thing that it is, is it's a vision of God's power and glory. If you look back at verse 13, when this all happened, he says, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, and it shone all around me. The appearance of light in the Bible is a major way. It's a big theological theme of how God reveals himself. You see in the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1, the God who says, let there be light and there was light. It's God's revelation. You see at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, that at the end of the story, the apostle John, he observes the new heaven and the new earth as a place where night will be no more, for there will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. From beginning of end of the Bible, God reveals himself through light, his glory, his power. So people like Thomas Edison might have found out how to harness light and put it in glass containers called light bulbs, but God is the very source of light. That's what his holiness means. Like there's no one else in his category. He is holy in a category by himself. And the sun itself, like the sun that came out this weekend, praise God, the sun, it's the greatest and most powerful light that we can see from earth. So much of our life is dependent on the sun. And what Paul says here is that there was a light that came from heaven that actually shined brighter than the sun. And he was convinced by that light. When that light shone all around him, he knew that his life was changed forever. This is the heavenly vision that Paul saw. All of his prior religious beliefs that he was convinced of, his prior way of life, it came crashing to a halt when the light from heaven shined on him. And he was convinced by the glory of that moment, but then he opened up his Bible. It says he looked to the scriptures and saw that that light was now shining the truth of the Bible to reveal this is what the true reality was all along. This is who God is. This is the true God. 
And we've all had some type of experience with God that just convinced us of his existence, his glory, and his power. Some time period in your life where it was like the lights turned on and you saw him and you saw the world in a totally different way. This is the heavenly vision. And in the midst of that blinding light, Paul heard a very specific voice, right? The specific voice of Jesus. Look at verse 14 and 15. He says, I heard a voice. He says, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. So this wasn't just like this like psychedelic experience where there was a blinding light and then all of a sudden reality became clear. Like the power and the glory was displayed through the light, but then the clarity of what was even going on came from this voice, this voice of this one called Jesus, the one that Paul had been persecuting. So the heavenly vision, it's characterized by hearing the clear voice of Jesus. It makes sense that the light of the glory of God would be accompanied by the voice of Jesus because if you remember from the story of Jesus in the Bible, he actually called himself the light of the world. In Matthew chapter 17, there's this story. It says that Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and he led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And in that moment, he was transfigured. He was transformed before them. And it says his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. John, who was there on that mountain that day, who witnessed Jesus' face shining like the sun, he would later write this in John chapter one about his friend Jesus. It says, in him was life. In him was life. Like life was flowing out of him. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. He connects Jesus, the man Jesus, with the creation of the world in Genesis 1. The Apostle Paul, who had this experience that we're reading about in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, he would reflect similarly. He says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So for us, Christian, doxa, looking to the heavenly vision means looking to Jesus. Seeing the glory and the power and the holiness of God in his face. Hearing his voice speak our name in our language. And something we'll come back to in a couple minutes is that this doesn't have to be like a physical manifestation like Paul had. In fact, for the most part, normally it's not. But it says he speaks to our hearts. He said the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ shining into our hearts. We'll get back to that in a second. And when we see Jesus in the heavenly vision, the last thing that we see, the last kind of aspect of what this heavenly vision even is, is we see ourselves in light of it. Okay, we see our sinful self exposed and humbled, but then repurposed and rebuilt by the grace and love of God. Look back at verse 14. It says, when he had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why? Like, I just imagine that question, why, just piercing into a soul. Like, why are you persecuting me? What is your reason? Why? And he was exposed in that moment. Totally exposed on the ground. He had been convinced that he should give his whole life, says, in raging fury to opposing Jesus and persecuting the church. But then in a moment, the glory of God broke through, knocked him to the ground. He heard Jesus call out his name, expose his sin. And in an instant, in an instant, I think when he heard that word, why? He knew that he had been dead wrong. His whole life had been lived in the wrong direction. Jesus says, it's hard for you to kick against the goad, which is a farmer analogy for 
you've been living your life in the whole wrong direction. That's the friction and the tension that you feel. You've been living for the wrong vision and you know it. And you can imagine what Paul must have felt like to be laying there on the ground, blinded by the light, feeling the glory and the power of this person and calling out, who are you, Lord? And then hearing that I am Jesus, the one that you have been persecuting. In verse 15, he is encountering the one that he's been persecuting, the one that he's been raging furiously against, the one whose family he has been punishing and affirming their very deaths. He's knocked on the ground, blinded by the light, and he's got to be thinking, this is it. This is it. I've been killing Christians. Now I deserve to die by the Christ. I was all wrong. And now I'm going to face the consequences. Can you picture him laying there in that moment and what he must have been anticipating and expecting? I'll tell you this, he was not expecting what happened next. Look at verse 15. Jesus responds, I am Jesus who you are persecuting, but rise. Not, but now I'm going to persecute and kill you. He says, but rise and stand upon your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and a witness. Paul meets Jesus and rather than being destroyed by his just wrath, which would have been totally just, he is redeemed. He receives forgiveness for his sins. Jesus says, hey, what I did on the cross, that thing that you didn't see, that you didn't understand, that you've been opposing, that was for you. Rather than you being destroyed right now by my presence, I was destroyed for you on the cross. This is the heavenly vision. Jesus tells him to rise to his feet. He gives him a new purpose for his life. Paul's life, his whole self, as Paul started at the beginning of his speech, he said, I'm gonna speak for myself. The only self that Paul can now speak of is his self that has been found and remade in Christ. He's been given a new purpose This wasn't a promotion in his normal path that he was going. He didn't just become a better Pharisee. This was a new appointment, a new assignment, a whole new role. He got a new identity. His name went from Saul to Paul. He went from persecutor of the church to planter of the church. He became a witness and a servant of the heavenly vision. And he he became the type of person that could stand before the most powerful people in the world with total poise and boldness and humility and love and confidence that I'm not gonna obey the Jews who wanna kill me and get me out of this. I'm gonna obey the heavenly vision. He was exposed and rebuilt. And Paul's story is all of our story. Not the specific exact details, but the whole thing of like losing his name and then gaining the new name that he was created to have. Think about this. Everything that we know and love about the Apostle Paul, he was not heading in that direction before he met Jesus. And this means that the Paul that he, the Saul that he thought that he was is not who God had created him to be. He was made to be the Apostle Paul that we know. He was utterly convinced, though, that Saul was who he was. And we can see now that this was not the purpose he was created for. And this is all of our stories We've all gained an identity and a purpose and a plan for our life on earth. But when we saw the heavenly vision, we got a new name, a new purpose, a new transformation. The you that you think you are, the you that you so desperately want to be is not the real you. It's not the real you. The real you is waiting for you in Jesus. 
The real you can only be found in the one that made you and has a new name, a new identity, and a new purpose for your life. This heavenly vision is about getting clarity about who you even are and what you're even here for. It's what happens when we see this heavenly vision. It completely flipped Paul's life upside down in the best possible way. He would never forget that day. He stood before the most powerful empire in the world. They told him to speak for himself and he simply said this, I've endured everything out of obedience to this heavenly vision. And this wasn't like a one-time memory for him. It was a constant re-engagement. It became a way of life. Jesus says, I'm appearing to you now, but I'm gonna keep appearing to you. Paul says, I've had the help, King Agrippa. I've had the help that comes from God. Listen to, to how Paul, in one of the letters that he wrote during this same time period while he was in prison, the book of Philippians, listen to how Paul talks about his constant re-engagement with the heavenly vision. Okay, this is Philippians chapter three, start number seven. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrections and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. This is what he was constantly, consistently living his life for, not just in this moment, but throughout his whole life. Verse 14 says this, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul not only endured his cross, he embraced his cross as the way that he experienced the surpassing worth of knowing Christ and gaining Christ because it made him like Christ And this was the goal that he pressed on toward. This upward call of God in Christ Jesus, this heavenly vision at its deepest level, this is what drove him. This is how Paul would wake up every morning and keep going because he clearly saw this heavenly vision. And so that's Paul. But how can we see it? Okay, because that's the question that we need to get to. The way that Paul received the heavenly vision, it was unique, right? Our story doesn't have to play out exactly like Hip's story, but there's a pattern there. There's a pattern in how it happened that is helpful for us to know how we can keep the heavenly vision in front of us. And here's the pattern. It's very simple. God reveals himself to us. We humble ourselves and look to him. It's essentially what happened. God revealed himself to Paul. Paul humbled himself and he looked to God. He was blind and then he saw. And that becomes the the new pattern of our life. God reveals himself to us. We humble ourselves. We look to the heavenly vision. And the primary way, guys, that God reveals himself to us today is through the Bible. Okay, it's not through these Damascus Road experiences, although God can break into our lives and speak directly to our heart, but the primary normal way is through the Bible. And this was already happen- starting to happen with the Apostle Paul. And ver- look at verse 17 and 18. As Paul has this heavenly vision, Jesus tells him, he says, I'm now sending you to open their eyes. I came and opened your eyes in this kind of crazy way. I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified in me. And what Paul would go then and do to open their eyes, as Jesus would send him to open their eyes, he would preach the Bible to them. He would open up the scriptures. If you, if you read the book of Acts, if you see all of his other letters, he's constantly just opening up the scriptures and showing them how Jesus is the Christ, 
showing them how they can turn from the power of Satan to God and their eyes are opened. And so we too today, we, we see Jesus. We actually see him when we hear him preached. Galatians is another letter that Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia. And in chapter three, he's talking to them. And he says, it was before your very eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He says, you, you saw him. You saw Jesus crucified. The only problem was they didn't. They weren't there. They weren't there at the cross. But what he's actually referring to, he says, when I preached Jesus, when I proclaimed to you Jesus from the Bible, the ears that you heard my voice through became eyes and you spiritually saw him. And this is our experience. If you're a Christian today, you know something of what I'm talking about. Spiritual sight. We've seen the heavenly vision as the words of the Bible have been spoken over us. And so the picture is becoming a little clearer now. We're seeing this picture of the Christian life as us following Jesus, taking up our cross, throwing it over our shoulder, but then in one hand we've got our Bibles. And we're looking to God and his word and we're looking ahead to the heavenly vision. Paul describes it like this. Listen to the, the dynamic of how it works. He says, this light and momentary affliction, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's the heavenly vision. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Don't miss that. He says, as we look not at the things that we can see, but at the things that we can't see. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We can all see the heavenly vision because God reveals it and because we can actually look at it. About four or five years ago, I had uh, laser eye surgery on my eyes. It was called PRK surgery. I was nearsighted. I couldn't see things that were, they were up close or far away. And, and here's the thing with PRK surgery. There's this moment of like a dramatic transformation that happens to you. Like I remember when they put me under this big machine and Caitlin, my wife, was like sitting on the other side of the glass. It was an outpatient surgery. And it was like a mixture between like time traveling and then like so many burning off your eye. Like I, I felt like I got transported in time and I was going through a wormhole or something because you're awake as it's all happening. And it, it is like a, you can, you can kind of smell and hear the, the burning of your eye from this thing. It's, it is radical. It is dramatic. And what they're doing is they're changing the plane and the perspective of your eye so that you can see. And the crazy thing about it is as like, as painful and as radical as that moment is when you go under the, the knife and they cut your eye open, you actually, you can see better, but then at the same time, you totally can't. And it really hurts. And what you have to do is you have to follow up that dramatic transformation that happened in the surgery with this, this daily faithful process of putting these eye drops in your eye so that they will heal. There's a daily healing process that has to happen. And over time, as you do the eye drops multiple times a day, it's like your, your eye is like getting used to this new reality that it can see and then eventually you can actually like see what was always there. That's the problem with vision, right? Is like the world is out there for us, but we just can't see it. PRK surgery helped me to actually see what has always been there right in front of me. And the human condition of sin is a spiritual blindness. We're blind to the spiritual realities of God, but God has opened up our eyes. He's given us a heavenly vision. And there is like a moment where that happens. 
But in order to keep it before us, in order to clearly see it, in order to live our lives in light of it, we need to engage with this daily process of healing. We need to like put in these eye drops. We need to, to look at the heavenly vision and intentionally focus on this perspective. So I want to close by giving us just some, some insight from, from Paul of some other places that he wrote about doing this to get really practical for our lives. If we're going to endure the cross and carry our cross, we need to look at the heavenly vision. How do we actually do that? Okay, so I have, I have four ideas for you to, to consider. The first one is this. We need to daily choose to look at the heavenly vision. It's a daily choice. In one of Paul's early sermons in Acts, he quotes Psalm 16 as being fulfilled in Jesus. So this Old Testament text, he says, this was ultimately about Jesus. And listen to what Psalm 16 says. It says, the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Paul preached that text and the psalmist wrote that text saying like there's a way that we can daily choose in the same way that we choose like our portion of our, our meal, in the same way that we have these regular rhythms and habits of, of putting food before us, of putting all kinds of things in, in front of our attention, we can daily choose to do that with God. So this is a verse that needs to express itself actually in our schedules. In the same way that your schedule reflects regular meals, we need to have regular rhythms of setting the Lord before us. Regular times where we're opening up our Bibles and opening up our hearts to the Bible, setting the Lord before us. So consider this. If you're a Christian and you're feeling the challenge of this this end part of the book of Acts, how are you going to have the strength to pick up your cross every day if you don't draw your strength from the heavenly vision every day? It's every day that we need to follow Jesus. It's every day that we need to pick up our cross. How are you going to draw the strength if you don't have a regular way that you're looking to the heavenly vision? So that's the first thing. We need to, to choose this. Here's the second idea for you. Once, you. once you choose it, you need to focus your mind and imagination on the heavenly vision. Focus your mind and imagination. Colossians chapter 3, this is a, a section that Paul wrote. He says, If then you've been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So in the same, like we all know how to daydream and imagine and think, right? Like that's, that's what we do as humans. And in the same way that we imagine our dream career, our dream home, our dream bank account, we need to focus our attention and our thoughts and our imaginations on our life with Christ. Because as Paul says in Colossians 3, this is what's most true about us and one day we will fully be with him. And it's hard work to do this, but when we open up our Bibles and then we go out into the world, we're trying to fill our minds and our imaginations with the truth of scripture, the perspective of scripture, the heavenly vision. We go on walks with our families and we look around at God's world and we see the the beauty here and we trace it all the way back to the source. We sit down at our dinner tables and we, we thank God for what happened during the day, not just assuming that it was like random chance, but we say, actually, I'm, I'm training my imagination here to say these things, these gifts came from God. This is how we, we gain a heavenly vision. And this isn't to go into a dream world and escape reality. We see Paul more fully engaged with sacrificial love and with people than any of us 
are, but his vision was, was heavenly. The third idea is that we need to pray that God would open our eyes. As much as it's on us to focus our thinking and our imagination and to set rhythms and patterns, we need to ask God to open our eyes. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 1, 17 and 18. He prays that Christians, he says, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. He's saying, you've already believed the gospel, but I'm praying that God would continue to enlighten your heart, that you would actually see and know what is actually true about you. This hope that he purchased for you on the cross, I'm praying that he would open your eyes to actually see it and believe it. And so when we read our Bibles, when we listen to preaching, we do it prayerfully and expectantly saying, God, show me what is in here to be what is actually true out here. Put it in my vision. And then number four, over time, this heavenly vision will transform us but it happens over time. 2 Corinthians 3.18, this is Paul. He says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, looking at the glory of the Lord, the heavenly vision, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The transformation that a Christian can experience is as tangible as the warmth that you feel from the sun coming on your skin. It's as tangible, but it happens over time. We become bright like the one that we behold. That's why Paul, one of his favorite ways to talk about Christians was to call us children of light who are starting to resemble God's character. We have this trajectory, 2 Corinthians uh, 3 is talking about, towards glory. We're being changed a little bit more. How? By beholding the glory of the Lord. By looking to the heavenly vision. This is what the, the spiritual formation class that we're going to do is essentially going to be helping us do is how do we become the type of people that walk around with two feet planted on the ground, carrying our cross through this world, but with our eyes focused and set on a heavenly vision that can transform us now and that can lead us towards glory then. So in conclusion, guys, Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after him, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the challenge of carrying our cross and it's also an invitation to find our true life in him. This is the road that is before all of us as Christians in some form of another. This is everyone's story if you're gonna be a follower of Jesus. But listen, there is coming a day. There is coming a day where we are put down our cross and take up our crown when the heavenly vision that we've been looking to in this life has actually come right before our eyes. We don't have to seek God's face anymore through our Bibles, but we're actually gonna see his face right in front of us. And until that day, let every ray of sunshine that hits your face this spring be a physical reminder that the one day you're gonna be in the presence of the warmth and the beauty and the life of the one whose face shines brighter than the sun. Let's be captivated by this heavenly vision together. The one that Paul was captivated by, by while he carried his cross. He obediently walked towards it, even if his obedience meant suffering because he knew this. Now we see in a mirror dimly but then face to face. Now we know in part, then we shall be fully known even as we have been fully known. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you that the way that you have helped us to come to know you is not first by us reaching up for you or by us studying enough to discover who you are, but you have come down to our level. You have revealed yourself to us. God, you have opened our eyes. We once were blind, but now we see. And through the the simple means of, of a book that you wrote, of men and women that you used throughout history to reveal yourself to them, and then you recorded their stories through the pens of of, of mere men like us. God, we hold on to our Bibles and and we are are holding on to you. We look down at our Bibles and, and what it says about reality and then we look out into the world and we pray, God, open our eyes so that this is what we will see. God, you have called us to so much in our lives individually, as a church in this city and in the world. You've called us to carry our cross and follow you. And we will not be able to do it without seeing this heavenly vision. So help us to see it. God, we're going to behold and turn our eyes to you right now and lift our voices to you in song. And I pray that you give all of us just a, a moment, a glimpse of your glory that would carry us forward. And it's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.